right, let's open up our Bibles this evening. You can open up to Joshua 13. Joshua 13. And let us pray together. Our God, our dear God in heaven, we just asked the question in that song. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I pray tonight that that wonder, that wonderful question would be true of every heart in this room. And for any heart that it is not true, I pray that you would reveal yourself. I pray that you'd reveal Christ and Him crucified, emptied, emptied in putting on manhood, showing His weakness to suffer and die for our sins. I pray that you'd reveal that tonight to our hearts. And I pray for anyone, anyone in this room that prays with that glorious prayer in their mind, I pray that they would find the adequacy and the sufficiency in Christ to do, to boldly do all that you called us to do. I pray this in, in Christ's name. Amen. As you're turning to Joshua 13, I have a question for you. Are you a creative thinker? Are you a creative thinker? Uh, do you uh, easily get bogged down in details and get frustrated and give up? Uh, can, you, can you assess the repercussions from actions and what those things will be? Do you have a good memory of sorts? Are you able to learn from your mistakes? Do you have a, a creativity in your thinking? I have a test tonight. It's called a creativity test. And, and we will learn soon if any of you are smart. I mean creative. Um, got this offline, so it must be true. Uh, the following test is the definitive indicator as to whether or not you are a creative person or not. So get ready, people. Get ready, Pinterest. I've got some new people for you soon, I'm sure. First question, how do you put, uh, and if you've heard this before, don't spoil it for me, please. Um, how do you put a giraffe into a refrigerator? Don't, don't answer, don't answer. Don't answer. How do, you, how do you do it? Oh, we've got ourselves a creative thinker here, people. Some of you got boggled down in how am I going to cut up the giraffe? Uh, what are we going to do with all the pieces that don't fit into the giraffe? Do we just eat it? What do we do here? You know, but no, it's very simple. You simply open the door and put the giraffe in. But another question, another completely unrelated question. Um, how do you put an elephant into the refrigerator? Uh, yes. That is it, people. That is it. A true creative person. The, the Pruitts, they're, they're not just showing off for their parents. They're truly creative tonight, people. You, 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 you probably, some of you guessed wrong when you thought, I'll just open the refrigerator and just put the elephant in. Obviously, no. Obviously, no. This is a question that tests your ability to assess the repercussions of your actions. Some of you forgot about the giraffe entirely. And that shows you're not a creative person, apparently. 
Um, and next question. Uh, Mufasa, the Lion King, is hosting an animal conference in his kingdom. All the animals are, attended, are expected to attend, but, which, but one animal does not attend. Which animal does not attend? Yes, Noah. The elephant. Yes, that's right. No, it's not Scar. Some of you are getting all lyrical and poetic. No, it was not Scar. It was the elephant, of course, because he is still in the refrigerator. Uh, A final question. Um, There is a river you must cross, but it is inhabited with crocodiles. How do you manage to get across said river? Yes, Amelia. That's right, that's right. You, you would have been wrong, of course, had you had said anything else. That's right, all of the alligators are at the party that Mufasa is holding. This question, of course, tests your ability to learn from your mistakes. Some of you are smart, some of you are creative. Now, what a kind of a test is that? Is that a test or is that a joke? I, I think it's kind of a joke joke, right? I mean, it, it, my favorite kind of jokes are those kind of like slow those slow payoff jokes where you kind of have to keep track of details. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a really important principle to learn from a joke, right? When you are listening to a joke, what do you do? You pay attention, right? You pay attention to the details because you know somewhere down the line that stupid detail about that giraffe in the refrigerator is going to make total sense. It's going to be a payoff. It's going to be a punch, and I'm going to love it. And that's how you listen to jokes. You say, these details matter, and I want the payoff, so I'm going to listen to every bit of this joke. That's how you listen to jokes. You listen to it with a sense of certain expectation. And I want to suggest to you, that's also how you should read your Bible. With a sense of certain expectation. Now, let me be clear. I am saying you should read your Bible like it's a joke. But I'm not saying you should read your Bible like it's a joke. I'm telling you, you should read your Bible with the expectation that God wants to tell you something through these details, and you should be hungry for every single detail because you want that punch, that great punchline to come home to you. And that's my urgency for you tonight. We are going to be looking at Joshua uh, 13 all the way through 19. We're going to read it all. No, we're not going to do that. But we're going to kind of summarize it all. And there's a lot of details in here. There's a lot of dirt in here. There's a lot of boundary markers in here. There's a lot of city names that I cannot pronounce in here. And you can't either, so don't laugh at me. (laughs) But my urgency tonight is that you don't throw out 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. But... But my urgency would be the same for any part of the Bible that you read. My, my urgency for you tonight is that you approach every nook, every corner, every paragraph, every page of God's Word, even those crusty pages that you never open, with the expectation that God is going to communicate something vital to you that is profitable for you that is helpful for you, that is needful for you, that you may be complete, as it says in 2 Timothy 3. That you may be complete. That's the way our God is, isn't he? He loves to communicate things through seemingly insignificant circumstances. He loves to communicate that way. John Henry, or Matthew Henry, a Puritan who wrote a commentary on the whole entire Bible, wrote this about this passage that we're in tonight. Uh, Therefore, we should not 
We are not to skip over these chapters of hard names as useless and not to be regarded. Where God has a mouth to speak and a hand to write, we should find an ear to hear and an eye to read. And God give us a heart to profit. Notice what is he saying right there? He's saying where God has inspired something, where God has said, this is important, write this down. Lord, let us have an ear to hear and a heart to learn and to profit from it. And that is, that is the goal here tonight. This, this passage of Scripture is very beneficial to you. It's very necessary to you. It's very helpful to you. And look at it with expectation. Believe that God has something good to teach you, even from these portions of the Bible. For example, tonight... I'm going to ask you to believe that these are pages meant to mature and grow your faith. These are pages that will teach you the how-to of faithfulness to God. These are pages that also have a great deal to show you about how your faith can be made useless and fruitless and how you can suddenly find yourself faithless to God. These are pages that have great importance. And so we should, be, we should be slow, slow to disregard them and quick to hear. Let's listen to a few truths that we can gather from this vast portion of Scripture. We won't be able to read it all tonight. But I'm going to give you just three kind of lessons to take away from this massive land allotment section. A lesson truth that wants to be pressed home into your heart tonight. Number one. Be eager to rejoice in the force of God's faithfulness. Take this down. Be eager to rejoice in the force of God's faithfulness. Be eager to rejoice in the force of God's faithfulness. The the glimpses of God's faithfulness that you see in these chapters should be looked at you as, as a force that can work tremendous good in your faith and do tremendous damage to your sin. This is a force for faithfulness. But it's only going to be a force for faithfulness if you're eager to receive it, if you're humble to hear, if you're slow to turn the page, if you're, if you're, if you're slow to look and think. What should you rejoice about in these pages? Well, first off, you should rejoice as you approach this moment of history in what God has done up to this point and what God is doing right here. What did God start with? Remember, we started our series in Joshua kind of giving you a historical kind of kind of update on where we're at so far in the Bible. Remember, from, from Adam to Abraham, God has, has been holding up this promise of the promised land through which he's going to build up his kingdom and work about his return to Eden. This has been God's plan. But all along, people, God's people that he calls them, seems to just mess up again and again and again. And it seems like it will never come to pass. The question we, we've been asking, if we're reading our Bible up to this point, is how is God going to make a nation out of these people? They can't walk through the Red Sea and take three steps before they're complaining. How is God going to make a mighty nation out of these people? Or how is God going to make a mighty nation out of one man who's so old that he can't even have kids anymore, and he doesn't even have kids anymore? That, 
That is the person that God was working with when he made promises to Abraham. And those are the people that God is working with here in our passage. But God has done it. He has brought Israel, yes, even Israel, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, despite their sinfulness, to this place where they're about to receive the promised land. And just think about it. Just think about the the moment we are in history. The remarkable miracle of God's power and grace and mercy that we stand before right here, when we stand before this promised land, beckoning before these people. Let's just read just a, a, a snippet of it. 13, 13 chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and Yahweh said to him, You are old and advanced in years. It's just one of the best lines. And very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains, all the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites, from the Sihar, which is east of Egypt, even as far as the border of Ekron to the north. It is counted as Canaanite. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gizite, the Ashdodite, the Eshkelonite, the the, the Gittite, the Ekronite, the Avite, to the south of the land of the Canaanite, Miara, that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Aphek, to the border of the Amorite, and the land of the Gebelite, and all of Lebanon, to the east, toward the sunrise, Baal God, below Mount Hermon, as far as Lebo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as uh, Misraphoreth Ma'am, all the Sidonians, I will dispossess them from before the sons of Israel. Only allot it to Israel for an inheritance as I have commanded you. Look what God has done. He has faithfully brought his people through and now he is presenting them with this land. Matter of fact, as the chapters now unfold before us, we see how it is divided. First off, in chapters 14 and 15, the, the longest, the first portion goes to Judah. This is a, a land of rich geography. It goes, it goes all over the place. It has a, it has a, uh, a wilderness. It has a, uh, a hill land. It has coastland. It has this kind of hilly terrain where it was really good for farming. It has all sorts of, all sorts of resources in it. And then in 16 through 17, we see the two tribes belonging to Joseph, Manasseh, and, and Ephraim. They get some of the most rich and fertile land of all of the tribes. And then in chapter 18 through 19, we see the lots to the remaining seven tribes given out. Each tribe is given their own little parcel of land. And it's all chosen by God for them. Every spot of land is, is God's personalized gift to these people. Not one accident is made. The Lord makes no mistakes in who can handle what piece of land. And when you, when you listen to, to the boundaries, you should, you should listen as someone who is listening to their inheritance being read. Because that's what it's like for the Israelites, right? This is God's gift to me and my family forever. This is God's gift to me. 
Look what God has done. He has brought them out of Egypt and has now given them all land of their own. His own gift of grace. And that brings us to, to another thing that we can rejoice in, just under this first pot, part. Don't just rejoice in what God has done. You should also rejoice, be eager to rejoice in, in why God has done it. God called a people who were not a people to become His people. God called a people who were without mercy, slaves in Egypt, to be slaves of His mercy. And the reason why God chose? The greatest reason of all. Not because of anything that they have done, but because of His singular sovereign grace. His mercy. You see this illustrated all throughout the story of Israel. And you even see it illustrated here. Why was Judah first? Why was Judah given the, the, the king's portion? Given the scepter? Well, it wasn't because of their birth order. It wasn't because of their father's favoritism. It wasn't even because Judah never sinned. Judah received this gift because of God's grace. Don't, don't forget it. You are a recipient, too, of an inheritance of grace that God has given you. It's the same God that we see in our life. And, and my preaching urgency in this first point is in the, in the final thing you should be eager to rejoice in. You should rejoice in the logical force of all of this. You should rejoice in the logical force of all of this truth that we've already talked about. God has been faithful to His purposes and His promises. God has been faithful to purposes that are rooted in His grace and for His purpose of His own kingdom and His own glory and destroying sin. God has been very faithful to that. And what's the logical force of all that that strengthens faith? Well, there does remain much land for the children of Israel to possess. Even by the end of Joshua, they haven't even possessed all their land. As a matter of fact, they've never fully possessed all the land God has promised them. You get that sense? But all throughout Joshua, the drum keeps banging the whole time. But God has been 100% faithful. Use this to move forward in faith. If God has been faithful then in His purposes, in bringing us all the way thus far, how much more should we trust in Him to get us through the smaller issues of our day-to-day life? You should be eager to rejoice in the logical force that you can call to your mind and to your heart and to your faith as you examine God's faithfulness here. Even though the the area of God's rule, the world, is, is not looking very friendly to to God, and even if the instruments of God's message, us, are not very strong, we can have confidence in God's faithfulness because of what He has done. It's His power, and it's according to His purposes, and it's all in His grace, and we can have confidence. You could say it like this, faithfulness in the Christian life, faithfulness drags God's drags God's past into your present and gains assurance from that to act with boldness and obedience. But this leads us to the second lesson these chapters want to press home for us. Not only should we be eager, eager in the the force, eager to rejoice in the force of God's faithfulness, but also beware, beware of the first cracks of faithlessness. Beware of the first cracks of faithlessness. Even here in Joshua, a book that's pretty positive. 
pretty exciting, pretty encouraging, pretty victory sounding. There are cracks of faithlessness. And we've already seen this. We've already seen this in, in Israelites failure with the Gibeonites. We've already seen this in, 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 in Achan's failure as well, right? Israel already shows their weakness. And, and all throughout these chapters, these chapters of land allotment, we see hints, cracks of faithlessness coming, particularly in the book of Judges. So look at this really quick. Chapter 13, verse 13. This is when, um, the tribes east of the Jordan, who had already received their inheritance, are receiving their lots. But notice this little note that the author puts here in verse 13. The sons of Israel did not dispossess the Geshurites or the Mechathites. So Geshur and Makath live among Israel until this day. Or look over at chapter 15, verse 63. 15, verse 63. This is talking about Judah's inheritance. Now, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the sons of Judah could not dispossess them. So the Jebusites lived with the sons of Judah at Jerusalem until this day. Or look down in chapter 16, verse 10, talking about Ephraim. They did not dispossess the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day, and they became forced laborers. Or look in chapter 17, verse 12 and 13. But the sons of Manasseh could not take possession of these cities because the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Now it happened that when the sons of Israel became strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not dispossess them completely. And right in the center of all the land allotments, we kind of see this reset in chapter 18, 1 and 2. We see Joshua once again call the whole congregation of Israel together again, this time at Shiloh, the, the, the location where the Ark of the Covenant and the tent, the tabernacle was located. He gathers them at Shiloh and they set up a tent of meeting there and the land was subdued before them. But notice this verse 2, and there remained among the sons of Israel seven tribes who had not divided their inheritance. So Joshua said to the sons of Israel, how long will you put off entering to take possession of the land which Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you? Notice the language there. How long will you put off? There's this Lack of eagerness almost. There's this fear. There's this uncertainty on the part of these tribes. Now, clarify, these are first cracks of failure. You don't see in Joshua all-out rebellion. You don't see in Joshua idolatry. You don't see in Joshua Israel basically um, committing holy war on each other. All of these things you see in Judges to a graphic degree. But what do you see, what do you see in Joshua? You, you see uh, first cracks of failure here that almost appear like acceptable sins. Oh, well, that's just because that's just they were afraid. It's a, and it's an acceptable sin. But the idea is these are the first cracks of failure and they, they make way. They, they show what Israel's going to become. Let's examine a few cracks really quick. For example, um, let's examine J Joseph's crack. Now, once again, Joseph got two tribes for the price of one, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And we already looked at them a little bit in chapter 17. Chapter 17, 12, and 13, you saw that they, were, they did not take full possession of the Canaanites, but they grew strong eventually, but they did not fully dispossess them. But notice what it says in verse 14. 
kind of jumping back to the, the land allotment with Joshua here. Then the sons of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, why have you given me only one lot and one portion for an inheritance since I am a numerous people whom Yahweh has thus far blessed? And Joseph said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up to the forest and clear a place for yourself there in the land of the Perizzites and of the Rephim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. So the sons of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the valley land have chariots of iron, both those who are in Beth Shean and its towns and those who are in the valley of Jezreel. Notice, notice what Ephraim is, is essentially saying. It, it's not really that they're saying, hey, the Lord God has not given us enough, but it seems to be we don't really like what the Lord God has given us, right? Hill country's too hard, don't want to chop. Chariots are too scary, don't want to fight them. We don't like the inheritance that God has given us. Now, what are, what are the cracks here? What are the acceptable sins that you see here? You see discontentment, right? You see a, a, a fearfulness, right? You see a, a disbelief on the part of Ephraim, don't you see? You see a forgetfulness in the faithfulness of their God. Wasn't, wasn't it just uh, like two chapters ago where you guys were taking out chariots left and right? And there's confusion also about what the life of God's people really should look like. These people, these Ephraimites, seem to, seem to think that being God's people means all of my problems should go away and I shouldn't have any difficulties. Or, for exa- let's, let's examine uh, the tribe of Dan. The tribe of Dan comes very, very last in the inheritance, and you see it there in chapter 19, verse 40. They're the seventh lot. They actually get an original allotment that is just down by Judah. It's actually in the territory where the Philistines would be. But in verse 47, you see this interesting phrase. It says, their territory went out from them. Essentially what it's saying there is they they weren't able to take the territory for themselves. And it's almost like Joshua's being a little bit kind in how this writer is, is describing them because Judges pulls no punches. It explains exactly what happened. In Judges one thirty four, for example, it says, The Amorites pressed the sons of Dan back into the hill country. And then the, the tribe of Dan is wandering around the entire book of Judges until Judges 18, when we see Dan not down by Judah and by the land of the Philistines, but we see them all the way up at the very north of Israel, looking for a land. And they finally find a land, and what's their qualification for a good land? Are the inhabitants easy to take out? Basically. Judges 18.7. Look it up later if you want. Right? What is the crack that we see in their faithfulness here? They are, they are looking for the easy life, right? They are, dis, they are holding a disbelief in the sufficiency of God. This land is too hard for us to take. We're going to take something that's easier for us. And the consequences of people with faith like this, who want an easy life, those who want an easy life make themselves an easy target. Dan is the first nation that's wiped out. 
they get run through all the time. Every time somebody invades, they go through Dan first. If you want an easy life, if you want a spiritually easy life, you will be the easiest target to take out. And Dan is an example of that. You should beware of the cracks of faithlessness. Now, I'm not saying that our sin has some, some sort of sovereignty over God's faithfulness, like your sin keeps God from fulfilling his promises. What I am saying is your sin keeps you from enjoying God's faithfulness. That's all I'm saying. God's promises are still working. He is still waiting to fulfill his promise, but these people were not able to enjoy it. Your sin, your love of the easy, will keep you from enjoying God's faithfulness. Let's look at a final lesson that we can learn from these these chapters in, in Joshua. Perhaps these untouched pages, which hopefully will not stay untouched for long. Number three, uh, be ready to work for faithfulness. Be ready to work for faithfulness. God promises to his people, God's promises to his people are sufficient. They come with his power and his strength, but he still requires that his people labor, labor to fulfill and take the land. We see this all the time, right? The Lord still wants Israel to take the land. God often does, I find, the same with us. He wants us to labor, to to sweat a little bit for godliness. He wants us to work at our sanctification. He gives us free grace in Christ Jesus, salvation beyond compare, his robes for mine. But then in sanctification, God calls us to labor and work. And sometimes God seems to give us a challenge, and this very challenge of our faith is meant to strengthen our faith because it makes us humble ourselves to our weakness and rely on him and look to him in his strength. Now, there's a bit of an interesting structure here. Some would call it a chiasm. Some would not. <clears throat> you see this whole allotment section begins uh, with Joshua and the elders and even, um, and even the high priest Eleazar, all, all meeting. It begins that way, and it even ends that way in chapter 1951. And then, and then you see this, this land allotment given to Joshua, and you see a land allotment given to Ephraim, the two big tribes. And the, the main vibe of this is God is faithful, but it's tarnished with, with God's people's faithlessness. We see that, right? There's cracks in their faithful, faithlessness. And then in chapter 18, all the way through 19, we see some more land allotments. This, these are two of the smaller tribes, the smaller allotments. But this also, too, is tarnished in kind of a negative way as well. So we've got the, the kind of the center. We've got center, two like negatives. And right in the middle, chapter 18 has Joshua kind of assembling the people to scold them about their faithlessness. So we've got negative, negative. But surrounding this entire section, you've got the first... Uh, the first allotment given actually to an individual. You see Caleb in chapter 14, verse 6. It is Caleb who asks for the land in Hebron. And at the very end of the land allotment section in chapter 19, you see Joshua finally get his own inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. So, I mean, if it's helpful... You see, you see a positive example in Caleb, then you see negative, negative, then you see positive. That's kind of like the whole wrapping structure of this entire uh, allotment of land. It's, it's, 
It has a lot of negativity to it, but at the same time, it's it's positive. It's surrounded by this these positive expressions of faithfulness. And, and why are these two men expressions of faithfulness? Remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only people that survived from the first generation. They saw the Red Sea. They saw the Exodus. And they were two of the 12 spies who went into the land. And all the other spies said, we can't do it. But Joshua and Caleb said, we can, using that same logic of faith that we see that we should have here. And so their, their, their faithfulness, their picture of faithfulness really demonstrates the rewards of faithfulness, right? Faithfulness has rewards. Your life will have repercussions to it. Either there will be faithfulness in your life, giving you consequences of rewards, or there will be faithlessness in your life, giving you consequences of trouble. That is what you see. And here, Joshua and Caleb have great rewards for their faithfulness, but they also demonstrate us the, the, the reality of faithfulness as well. And, and the same thing goes with the Christian life. The Christian life isn't a, hey, let's go and let God, let's just kind of sit back and relax and let him kind of take things over for us. That's not how sanctification works. That's not how growth works. Pursuing God's will takes boldness, takes sweat. And both Caleb and Joshua have to ask for a plot of land, and both of them have to put a little bit of skin in the game to conquer their lands. They have to take the lands themselves. And sometimes, faithfulness to God requires you to boldly obey and seek His sufficiency despite your, your fears, your, your comforts, your insecurities, your intimidation, I mean, just check out the words that Joshua himself says to the tribe of Ephraim, chapter 17, verse 18. He says to them when they're complaining about not wanting their land, he says, Though it is a forest, you shall clear it, and to its furthest borders it shall be yours, for you shall dispossess the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron, and even though they are strong. Notice, Joshua has this bedrock, solid confidence in God that they do not have. And let me give you a, 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 a very long, a very long definition of faith, faithfulness. You can try to take it down, but then I'll give you a short, shorter one right after that. But true spiritual faithfulness is this. It is the bold obedience to God and his will in your present circumstances. It is the bold obedience to God's will and word in your present circumstances because you bring into those present circumstances God's rap sheet from his past. And because you believe in God's resources for your present. Once again, true spiritual faithfulness is the bold obedience of God's will and word in your present circumstances because you bring God's rap sheet of his past faithfulness into your present and because you believe in the resources of God's will for your presence. Or you can shorten it down like this. True faithfulness is dragging the truth about your God into your present circumstances and acting like you believe it. True spiritual faithfulness is living like you believe in this God of the Bible. Does your life reflect the idea that you believe in the God of the Bible? Or does your faith reflect that you believe in a God of your own imagination? 
True faithfulness is living like you believe in the God of the Bible. It's living in obedience. It's bold obedience. Whoever said living for God or pursuing uh, Christ's way would be easy. Christ did not say that. Matter of fact, he would warn you against following him because his way was not easy. You'll have to go against the crowd. You'll have to go against your feelings. But you can move forward in bold obedience because of who your God is. You bring God's rap sheet. Now, that's a very weird way to express bringing the promises of God into your present circumstances. What does it mean to bring God's rap sheet? Well, in the criminal justice system, a criminal has a record of arrests and prosecutions that kind of hang over their head for the rest of their lives. And if we're honest, it kind of impacts the way people think of them. It kind of impacts their life and how you treat them, doesn't it? That guy's got a rap sheet. Well, your God has a record of activity as well. But it's a little bit different. It is 100% faithfulness. That is who your God is. 100% faithfulness. What should you believe about your circumstances when they are challenging? You should say, he is sufficient to get me through anything that is his will. What should be your assumption when your situation is hard or painful? You should say, he is in control. I don't know what he is working here, but he is in control. And he is working out for my ultimate joy in humility. And I can trust in that because he's got a rap sheet. That he's carrying with him wherever he goes. He has been faithful so far in all of his deeds. And he will be faithful to me as well. What kind of person are you when impossible circumstances come your way? What kind of person are you? Um, just in closing, my family and I have been uh, reading uh, this shorter version of John MacArthur's 12 Ordinary Men. It's called... 40 Extraordinary Lives in 40 Days or something like that. Uh, I got it from Shepherd's Conference. Uh, But I was struck by uh, the parallel of two disciples right next to each other. So turn in your Bibles. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua, or sorry, to John. Turn in your Bibles to John 6. John 6, 4. John 6, 4. Well, what kind of person are you when impossible circumstances seem to be crushing your life? What kind of person are you? What kind of Christian are you? What kind of God do you worship when situations seem impossible? John 6, 4, of course, Jesus is about to feed the multitude, the 5,000. John chapter 4, John chapter 6, verse 4 says this. Now the, the Passover, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. That's important, but we won't get into it. Verse 5, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, they were in the middle of nowhere, he said to Philip, one of his disciples, where should we buy bread so that these people may eat? And this he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them For everyone to receive a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, "Ah, There is a boy here 
who has five barley loaves and two fish. Fish, But what are these for so many people? And Jesus said, have the people sit down there. Now there were, was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. What kind of person are you when situations are hard or difficult or seemingly impossible? I love how um, MacArthur describes Philip here. He describes Philip as the bean counter. He is the bean counter of the bunch. Now, once again, let's, let's be kind to Philip. He had great faith. He followed Jesus unhesitantly. But he also had a weak faith as well. It seems to be that he was kind of the head of logistics of the disciples. He was in charge to see, you know, where their food was going to come from, how they were going to pay for it, and then go, you know, look for Judas to find money to pay for all the food that these disciples always seemed to need. He was the bean counter of the group. And, and, and perhaps he was the one, you know, in every single meeting, uh, I don't think we can do that. No, I, I, we can't afford that. I've been counting the beans lately, and we, we cannot afford that. We don't have enough money, you know. He was the, as MacArthur says, master of the impossible. The master of the impossible. Can't do that. I know we can't do that. Just stop you right there. Stop. He must have gone insane when Jesus walked across the water. Okay. But anyway. Probably what's happening here as these, these crowds are coming, Philip was probably, all he was doing was probably just counting heads. I can't do that, you know? And instead of thinking, wow, what a great and glorious opportunity for our Lord to teach so many people, all Philip could do was think about the numbers. It is impossible. Even for everyone to have even a little bit, it's impossible. Now, to be clear, we need bean counters in this world. To be clear, if you're a bean counter, I love you. Because I am not you. We need bean counters who can, 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 always, can always keep track of things and be organized. But you know what we need more than bean counters? We need bean counters that have this sneaky suspicion always when things seem impossible that Jesus must be up to something. Jesus, I don't know what's going on here, but I've got this sneaky suspicion that you know what you're going to do. Right? It even says it there. It's giving you a hint right there in the narrative, right? Jesus knew what he was going to do. Will this bean counter know what Jesus is going to do? No. But can he have a sneaky suspicion? But then look at another disciple there. You've got Andrew. And Andrew is, is called Andrew the Apostle of Small Things. And, and I, I love Andrew. Andrew is always fine with being in second place. Matter of fact, he brings Peter to Jesus, probably knowing Peter's personality and knowing that he would always be behind Peter. But yet, Peter meeting Jesus was more important to Andrew than Andrew being first. It's actually a beautiful picture of an evangelist, isn't it, right? Peter, you just need to meet Jesus. That's all you need to do. Notice what Andrew does here. He's not perfect, but notice what he does do. He brings what he has to Jesus and says, you figure it out. Now, to be clear, we don't need more people that are just going to sit back and let Jesus do everything. We need sweat and blood. But we need people. We need people with a sweet assurance about them. 
that I don't know how the situation is going to work, but I believe, Lord, that you have given this state to me as a lot of your grace. These boundary lines you have drawn for me in my life, and therefore I will call them pleasant places. I don't know how I'm going to handle this situation, but I trust in your adequacy. I trust in your sufficiency. Why? Because I have done the logic. And if you can save someone like me by dying on the cross for me, then you can handle giving me all the grace that I need, even for this situation. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, thank you for this evening. And I pray in small group that our minds would be sharp and attentive to what you have taught us through your word. Pray that we would not be distracted, but that we'd be humbled under your word and be ready to learn by it, be ready to apply it. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.